To put it simply, there are now corporations with billions of dollars of investment in not just the asset, but the ecosystem. Mining is a huge economic drain on the system, and all it accomplishes is censorship resistance. If censorship resistance isn't worth tens or hundreds of billions of dollars per year to those corporations, they will find a way to end it. When they do try to end it, they can point to the ETF's enduring appeal and ignore any constitutional brinkmanship from OG Bitcoiners who threaten to reject the new rules or sell their stacks. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And this show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the financial suite for your Bitcoin life. Buy Bitcoin, save Bitcoin, put it into your retirement, go to Swan Bitcoin. And to hold your own keys, go to CoinKite, get yourself a cold card, and don't forget my discount code, Bitcoin Audible. These guys support the show and help bring all of this to you. And we have got a great little read today. I love the thought experiments on how to kill Bitcoin and how everything's going to shit. And there's nothing we can do about it because for a couple of different reasons. One, they're really fun to, to kind of lay out that logical path of kind of the game theory and where things could go wrong. Two, I think it's our obligation to just kind of explore how this could blow up in our faces and we could end up in a future where we do not get what we want. And then three, it's also fun to pick apart where false assumptions are made or misunderstandings in how something works leads to a lengthy logical thought experiment that may actually be built up upon a false premise. And getting down to what that false premise is, is also a fun task. So somebody, I thought it was in the Audionauts, now I think it was on Noster, I cannot remember. I do this so much. I just offhand save something and then forget where it came from. So I would just want to shout out whoever recommended this one. And it seems like this is, the author is Akeem Warner, and Akeem Warner actually seems to have a bunch of kind of contrarian sort of writing. Uh, Bitcoin security trilemma and the security budget, how Bitcoin transactions can be censored, if demand becomes taken up by non-Bitcoin uses, blah, blah, blah. But I always find these kind of the contrary intake uh, really fun to dig into. And this article specifically didn't seem to get a ton of attention. So I thought this would actually be a good one to do on the show because this is a very common way of thinking. And it, it's very much in line with our guy's take about the ETFs and whether or not Bitcoin is gold 2.0. But it hits a number of unique potential issues that I didn't directly address in that guy's take so it's relevant but i think this is actually a good kind of extension of that and like i said uh, stuff that's fun to unravel so i agree with some of the points here i mostly disagree with the article but let's go ahead and give it its due justice in uh, a read and then we will get into a guy's take afterward all right with that let's jump into today's article and it's titled bitcoin is dead Long live IBIT. 
by Akeem Warner. The ETF approval confers some traditional legitimacy to the asset class and allows billions of dollars, or maybe $30 trillion according to Grayscale, in traditional investment to flow in from a wider pool. For those interested in number go up, this appears to be fantastic news. But if that $30 trillion actually does come in, it will destroy Bitcoin as we know it. It will fundamentally change the economics so that the game theory regime upon which Bitcoin was built will no longer be in effect. We won't bother here to discuss the 180 Bitcoin's ethos has done, fighting oppression versus building intergenerational wealth, because this pivot is obvious. Here we discuss the game theory. Bitcoin takes on two very ambitious and distinct goals. One is to create a widely accepted store of value with a fixed programmatic supply. The other is to create a decentralized cash system. In the evolution of Bitcoin, these two objectives have played mostly hand-in-hand. -hand. The accepted viability of Bitcoin as a store of value creates a liquid market, while use of Bitcoin as electronic cash creates demand, which in turn gives Bitcoin value. At smaller scales, the incentives are aligned. Let's start with the former, the ideal of a global shelling point for store of value. The existence of the Bitcoin blockchain is quite remarkable. The ledger apportioning Bitcoin has slowly invaded all corners of the global economy, representing what has been described as a slow-moving, immaculate conception. A centralized actor trying to create this from scratch would undoubtedly fail. The distribution isn't perfect, but there's no, quote, fair way to airdrop a new asset across the planet without doing something odious like eyeball scanning. A slow distribution over 15 years is the best one could hope for. There seems to be agreement among diverse market participants that this thing is useful and desirable, and that the appetite for shares in the ledger will persist in the future. If we, quote, we being everybody and anybody who is interested in such a thing, want there to be a fixed supply digital asset that can be traded as an ETF through our brokers, we now have this thing. It's a unique occurrence that will not happen organically again. Note that moving forward, the existence of this thing itself has nothing to do with how it is mined or how shares in the ledger are recorded. This is simply a shelling point that everyone in the world who values a fixed supply asset can trade. Given any cryptographic payment system, there are many methods for coming to consensus over the canonical ordering of transactions. The easiest and most efficient way is to choose a single entity for the task. Bitcoin mining is the opposite, clunky, competitive, and expensive. The downside is that it's costly. The upside is that it's extremely difficult for any one entity to arrogate control over the ledger. Miners, who generally benefit from the popularity, have no desire to damage the ecosystem by colluding with other miners or otherwise trying to game the system with untoward behaviors. This is how the virtuous cycle began. To bootstrap this virtuous cycle, we had to have Bitcoin's initial use case, peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash, money for those not well served by the traditional financial system and those who want to be financially self-sovereign. The fact that the payments are censorship resistant is a backbone feature here. This property gives Bitcoin non-zero value, 
allowing people to begin trading and distributing it, not just as something they can use to buy drugs, but soon also something to hold onto, and eventually a speculative investment. An actual, functioning, censorship-resistant currency is worth something. This was the bedrock of Bitcoin's value. If this fails, the Bitcoin experiment has failed. But today, the necessary supporting role that has been played by censorship resistance has been usurped. This role is played by the linchpin of institutional demand, manifested in the ETF. The former is along for the ride, but only until it can be conveniently jettisoned. Think of Bitcoin like a papier-mâché piñata that you build from a balloon, paper, and paste. To start the process, you need to inflate a balloon. Carefully, over time, you cover the balloon with paste-drenched strips of paper or string, adding layers one at a time, pausing after each to let it dry, repeating the process until the balloon is completely covered by a solid surface. Then you pop the balloon and extract it from a hole in the bottom, which you can then fill with candy or whatever. In the initial stage, you must be very careful not to pop the balloon. Don't use a hairdryer. If you do so, the whole project will be a soggy mess. In the latter stage, once the paper mache has hardened, the balloon is just some extra thing you need to get rid of. At this point, perhaps you are mouthing something about the block size war, wondering if perhaps the author of this essay has not read it. Yes, in fact, several times, and the author has even spent three weeks discussing it in a university course he instructed. There is no single lesson to be learned from the block size war. It was a complicated story, filled with blunders, turnabout, well and poorly played hands. The idea that the team that won in 2017 is forever the victor is silly. Just like winning the Super Bowl in 2017 did not confer the New England Patriots with eternal infallibility, the victory by the small blockers in 2017 does not mean every future battle will have the same outcome. This is one of the most nonsensical tenets of Bitcoin dogma. It is entirely worth looking closer at the block size war and asking what we did in fact observe and what sort of realities do persist. The dominant takeaway seems to be that users, Bitcoin's grassroots plebs, ultimately had the stronger hand. They flexed this muscle with the UASF, and eventually most of the corporations and miners on the large block side capitulated. There's a crucial piece of game theory here. If large blockers had elected to call the bluff on the user-activated soft fork, it probably would have been catastrophic for Bitcoin. The miners had capital investment they couldn't stand to lose money on, so they had no choice but to swerve in this game of chicken. In 2017, without the support of the grassroots small blockers and their decentralized ideals, Bitcoin would have faced a possibly disastrous constitutional crisis. In this sense, the users did have the upper hand. Part of the genius of Bitcoin is that it was designed with a failure as a possibility. To take the failure mode away fundamentally changes the game theory. What happens today? The locus of economic nodes has shifted drastically away from Raspberry Pi hobbyists and towards large financial institutions who are doing Bitcoin for Wall Street. When retail consumers, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, etc. are buying shares in the fixed supply currency through traditional finance channels, 
they are cementing a demand for share in this ledger that doesn't depend on its decentralized maintenance. If the ETF invites an influx of such investment, any cartel of corporations who would attempt a takeover can now safely ignore the threats of Bitcoin purists. These early adopters can no longer claim to be the crucial pillars propping up the system. If there is another game of chicken, Wall Street can stay the course. Would Michael Saylor sabotage his investment by dumping his stash because he doesn't like a minor-backed OFAC enforcement? Wall Street is smart to call the bluff. If Bitcoin becomes no more than an agreement by major financial players and their clients that tradable entries in this ledger are valuable, it becomes less important how we keep track of who has what share, provided the process is efficient, predictable, and legible to regulators. The current Bitcoin mining process was designed to be the opposite. Basic forces of economics suggest this inefficiency eventually will be shed. Every round in which institutional investors ape into the ETF is like another layer on the papier-mâché balloon. Enough of these, and the balloon is no longer necessary. Why not have 8-megabyte blocks, or 256-megabyte blocks? The retail ETF investor buys shares because they believe that someone in the future will want to buy their share, presumably because these future investors in turn believe that a future demand exists for their share. This may very well be a good bet, but none of this self-fulfilling dynamic relies on the minutiae of how the transactions are ordered. When registered market participants are trading shares through registered brokers, uninterested in double spending or shielding activity from authorities, the mining process becomes an expensive and obsolete Rube Goldberg machine at least as it applies to an economic preponderance of activity. The costs associated to mining leak billions of dollars out of the Bitcoin ecosystem, without a clear reason for this expensive process to exist. The financial sector will seek to end it. A thriving ETF market, especially when celebrated by Bitcoin holders, provides a sturdy structure and leverage for this attack. To put it simply, there are now corporations with billions of dollars of investment in not just the asset, but the ecosystem. Mining is a huge economic drain on the system, and all it accomplishes is censorship resistance. If censorship resistance isn't worth tens or hundreds of billions of dollars per year to those corporations, they will find a way to end it. When they do try to end it, they can point to the ETF's enduring appeal and ignore any constitutional brinkmanship from OG Bitcoiners who threaten to reject the new rules or sell their stacks. Mining itself represents a huge arbitrage opportunity available to someone who can leverage capital or organize a cartel. Take Kathy Wood's $1.5 million in 2030 case. This is over $100 billion per year vaporized in order to keep the network censorship resistant, just counting the block subsidy. These same transactions could be processed for a microscopic fraction. If some entity can come in and monopolize the process and lower the difficulty without destroying the game, this is free money. It's a valid question to ask, how? You can't just change the code or fire the miners, right? First note, 
that there will be two sets of conversations going forward. One is the usual one, on Twitter spaces or other open venues, where we argue about the relative merits of OpCat versus CTV as a means to enable protocols that will make Bitcoin a self-sovereign option to billions of people. But there is another set of conversations, which may have already begun, happening in private boardrooms. These conversations will not be shared with the rest of us. Think Dragon's Den, but more like Vulture's Roost. The folks in the Vulture's Roost also want to make Bitcoin an option to billions of people, just without the self-sovereign part. Rent-seekers gonna rent-seek. And this isn't simply about holding the asset and watching the number grow up. It's about re-intermediating the financial sector. So for the next part of the exercise, put yourself in the vulture's roost. What are your incentives? What tools do you have available to you? What risks are you trying to minimize? Who else is on your team? In the vulture's roost, you are free to say without judgment things like, Will no one bankrupt these turbulent miners? The goal from the vulture's roost will be to destroy mining and replace it with an inexpensive cartelized process that routes all transaction fees directly to a small group of insiders instead of towards miners' energy bills and puts insiders in positions to do insider things like profit from rich data streams or fancy financial products. The way to accomplish this is to signal that you are going to do it, then start doing it. Those who want to be a part of your coalition are in. Those who want to fight it will eventually fall away to attrition. In this psychological game, you will slowly convince investors that not only is centralization inevitable, but it's actually not so bad after all. We can assume that there are high fees on layer one. If not, miners will eventually start to suffer. Number geometrically must increase. And you can just buy them up as they go under. In a high fee regime, your first goal will be to route as many transactions away from the decentralized mempool as possible. If you can just buy up 33% of the hash rate and start selfish mining, that would be too easy. So we'll assume a more difficult base scenario in which you can only start with 5% to 10%. This is still a block every couple of hours. You can contact any major institutional user of the blockchain and broker out-of-band deals for block space. You can undercut the mempool by offering frequent users not only a discount, but an opportunity to shed fee volatility. You can even undercut the mempool openly with transaction accelerators priced below market rate. If you undercut the mempool market enough, you can begin to force many of the other miners out of profitability. You do this openly and brazenly. The goal is that any would-be home miner considering spending $20,000 on the latest ASIC will read the writing on the wall and think twice. Here, it's convenient that many of the transactions are brokered by corporations, not random self-sovereign people from around the world. It will be easier to capture a large part of the transaction volume if most transaction volume is handled by major corporations or generally KYC'd high-wealth individuals. But this isn't a stretch. If fees are high, Layer 1 Bitcoin won't be an accessible means of peer-to-peer -peer payment for most people. Most of the hyper-Bitcoinization scenarios assume that major institutions are willing to pay high fees to etch transactions into the blockchain. At the same time, you can take advantage of the high-fee regime to build a sidechain network or other alternative means of Bitcoin accounting. 
All you really need to do this is put together a network with critical economic mass, backed by a small amount of trust, but mostly backed by Delaware's Court of Chancery. For example, a cartel of corporations can create a multi-sig UTXO on the main chain, and then create their own blockchain. This could be something as simple as Fediment or Liquid, or mildly decentralized and creative like Arc, based on fancy things like timeout trees. You can create an entire permission-mined blockchain downstream of these UTXOs with 3-second block times and 32-megabyte blocks. As long as nobody thinks the corporate block validators are going to rug pull and get sued in a meat space court, people can treat this like actual Bitcoin UTXOs. Anyone who wants to transact in a near-zero fee regime can simply slide through certain access points over to this sidechain, saving perhaps millions of dollars in fees. For institutions who want to cut costs, this is a no-brainer. It's orders of magnitude better than lightning. And plus, if it goes wrong, you have someone to sue. The financial sector is too smart to sit around and pay billions of dollars a year in transaction fees. So while we still may have a fixed supply of coins asymptotic to 21 million, the practical ways in which transactions are recorded will mushroom. The ETF is just the beginning of this process. Layer 1 fees will trend towards negligible, except for the few people who really need to fully self-custody and are willing to pay market rate for that. Once you have moved a large volume of transactions away from L1 and towards the traditional financial sector, you can go after mining itself. Having starved the decentralized miner of much of their fee revenue, you next want to scare up enough hash power to force them out for good. At this point, you've been open about your intentions, Miners can see where this is headed, and when you offer to buy them out, they say yes, or at least the rational ones do. After your cartel gets to 33%, you can begin selfish mining, commencing the snowball phase towards 51%. After 51% is achieved, you now have full control and can ease down the hash rate, turning it back on if necessary to break the will of any stubborn decentralized miners. Soon, hash rate is minimal, but your cartel is still receiving the full block reward. But wait, won't everybody abandon Bitcoin when you start selfish mining and everyone sees that you're selfish mining? That's exactly the point here. Once the retail and institutional ETF investors are propping up the price with their 1-5% to IRA allocations, nobody cares. But also wait, won't all of the miners fight back? The dynamics of wars of attrition, dollar auctions, and coalition game theory come into play. The decentralized miners have no way to do selfish mining without coordinating somehow. If some subset of miners tries to selfish mine in retaliation, it will push all of the anonymous miners out for good, making your job easier. Your job is to send a strong enough signal that you have centralized resources behind your back, and so will win a war of attrition. Once you send this signal, it's a prisoner's dilemma among the remaining miners. Walk away with the full value of your ASICs today or get nothing in six months. You haven't broken any rules yet, nor pushed any hard forks. But after arrogating full control, you are free to hard fork at will. At this point, it will be a formality. After years of telling people what you are going to do, and then doing it over the objections of the purists, the hard fork is just 
the final step. Not that you have to worry about blowback. The final step to permissioned 10 gigabyte blocks will be widely celebrated as the next step in bringing sound money to everybody. This episode is brought to you by CoinKite, the makers of the cold card hardware wallet and the place to store or the tool to store your Bitcoin safely and securely. CoinKite has tons of amazing devices and they have been building these for a deck for more than a decade in the Bitcoin space. They've been around so long and they're a huge trusted source of secure hardware and uh, firmware for these devices. I'm an avid user of both the cold card and the tap signer, which is just literally a card that I can use just to tap with my phone, which is really great for kind of like this middle of the road where the key is separated from the phone, but it's not quite as secure as something like the cold card. But there are just so many great options and great tools made by this team that you are doing yourself a massive disservice if you do not at least go check it out. And especially if you don't have a hardware wallet yet and you're not holding your own keys, absolutely. Go to bitcoinaudible.com slash coldcard. The link will be right there in the show notes. And don't forget my discount code, bitcoinaudible, and I promise you will thank me. And this show is also brought to you by swan.com. Swan Bitcoin is a Bitcoin-only entire suite of financial services regarding Bitcoin, regarding getting on a Bitcoin standard, uh, getting your savings automatically set to, to allocate to Bitcoin, to get your retirement, to get your business. If you're a high net worth individual and you want white glove support, you want someone, you feel uncomfortable about, comfortable about it and you, you just want someone who can hold your hand, who, who just knows the answers to all of the questions you're going to ask and knows um, what risks there are in different setups and you want to know how to use your hardware wallet so you can actually hold your own keys. Swan Private is there anytime you want to make a call and ask a question. A real human will pick up and be there to assist. I've been buying Bitcoin through Swan for years. I, I honestly don't even know at this point. And they are a wonderful resource and place to start to learn, to dig into, to get anything regarding Bitcoin. Check them out at swanbitcoin.com guy. The link will be right in the show notes. All right. So that closes out the article, um, and there's some, there's a lot of really interesting kind of thought experiments uh, with this one. And as I said at the beginning, I love going through the how do how does Bitcoin get killed sort of thought experiments. And a lot of what is laid out here logically follows from the underlying premise. But I think what we need to do here is hit like what are the premises of this argument of this kind of worldview what has to be in place for this to actually work because i think there are a handful of very fundamentally flawed presumptions that we must accept before this course of action or playing at the playing out of this multi-year attack makes sense in any way shape or form so this goes back to one of the things that i think is good to listen to if you haven't is guys take 79 on why I do not believe that Bitcoin is gold 2.0. That fundamentally, the I think it was three that I laid out, the three core differences between or core limitations of gold that truly made it susceptible to the sort of capture, the total capture of the fiat financial system 
the three core characteristics, there are like one or two that end up being relevant, uh, mostly just in regards to the, the quote-unquote portability or the cost of movement when we're talking about a really high-fee environment. But I think it's way too, way too naive to just take the, oh, Bitcoin is costly and, oh, gold is costly, therefore they're the same. And I laid that out really well, I think, in Guys Take 79 because it's not merely an issue of cost. It is an issue of time and geography. It's the difference between something that is physical and something that is digital being, and the separation between those two types of settlement. A, a physical thing can never, never actually align with a digital, a virtual settlement of that thing. Even as soon as you begin the physical settlement of that thing, talking about like, you know, from Russia to the United States, you've already added numerous virtual, uh, exchanges on top of that and it can never actually clear it's always fundamentally and permanently behind on the settlement and similar to the way akeem actually argued in this is specifically that physical settlement when the overwhelming majority or people of people are using paper bitcoin or excuse me are using paper gold the physical settlement of that thing largely becomes irrelevant especially since all of those gold paper notes are trapped within the dollar financial system and everyone is simply using the dollar financial rails, which are centralized, which are permissioned, which are licensed. Now, I don't want to rehash that entire episode here, and I want to just kind of target more directly the argument laid out in this, in this article because this isn't quite the same argument. It's kind of along the same... Uh, the same spirit of, you know, it's going to be gold 2.0, but it's a different area of attack or mode of attack, so to speak. So let's just start with kind of laying out or hitting a quote that I think is just the general thesis here and hit a quote from the beginning. It says, quote, but today the necessary supporting role that has been played by censorship resistance has been usurped. This role is played by the linchpin of institutional demand manifested in the ETF. The former, meaning censorship resistance, is along for the ride, but only until it can be conveniently jettisoned. So if I want to do summarize or rephrase this thesis, the thesis of this uh, article, is I would say that there's going to be so much value and so much liquidity in the paper Bitcoin market that the underlying Bitcoin itself the protocol, the network, all of the actual transactions occurring on Bitcoin will essentially become meaningless to the market. And the paper Bitcoin will be worth more than the actual Bitcoin, in a sense. And thus, the holders of the paper Bitcoin market will be the ones who get to decide whether or not Bitcoin keeps any of its relevant properties. So we'll get into what the underlying premises are that require this to have basically any hold any water but first i want to actually hit the analogy that he uses which i actually think is really good i love this analogy i don't think it applies but i i really i really enjoy this visual image so here's the quote it says think of bitcoin like a paper mache pinata that you build from a balloon paper and paste to start the process you need to inflate a balloon Carefully over time, you cover the balloon with paste-drenched paste strips of paper or string, adding layers one at a time, pausing after each to let it dry, repeating the process until, 
the balloon is completely covered by a solid surface. Then you pop the balloon and extract it from a hole in the bottom, which you can then fill with candy or whatever. In the initial stage, you must be very careful not to pop the balloon. Don't use a hairdryer. If you do so, the whole project will be a soggy mess. In the latter stage, once the paper mache has hardened, the balloon is just some extra thing you need to get rid of. I actually love that visualization. I think that is a great way. Not only do I like the analogy, but also I don't think I actually knew how a pinata was made. I'd never really thought about it, but that's a really cool concept if that's exactly if that's actually what they do. And it's a really clear picture from the context of like a financial markets for how if you take the market away from its foundation, the liquidity outside of the actual asset in the paper market can undermine the very reason for the asset to exist in the first place. And this is literally exactly what happened to gold. I actually think this analogy is kind of really, really great at being able to picture what has happened, what happened to gold is that at the end of the day, when the paper, when the paper gold was the only thing that could actually settle at scale, the amount of value necessary in order to keep, you know, gold as a medium, as any value part, any part of the value of the actual exchange. Well, then ultimately, why did you need gold? Ultimately, you can just, you know, destroy all the gold in the vault. And if people still think it's there, then does it really matter? Or if it's been long enough, if it's been 50 years, 70 years, do people even think there's any, does it, does it care at, do they care at all that there's any gold? I mean, who cares today? They use their dollars. They've got all the network benefits. The value is offloaded to billions of people around the world and hundreds of trillions of dollars, basically, that are denominated in dollars for the assets. What do they need gold for? Gold is just kind of a $10 trillion headache. But there's one interesting piece of the puzzle here is that central banks and governments still use gold to hedge against each other. And that is actually growing again as the political battles and dissonance continues to grow around the world. Russia is a country that learned this lesson the very hard way very recently. And I want you to hold that in your mind because this is going to play a part in where I think his premise is fundamentally wrong. And one of his premises, actually, he kind of details out pretty explicitly. And it's also one that I disagree with. I think it's a misunderstanding. Um, and he does this just after bringing up the block size war. And I kind of agree. In fact, I'll actually hit that section really quick as, as a quote before we hit this, because I kind of agree with a lot of what he says here. So he says, quote, at this point, perhaps you are mouthing something about the block size war, wondering if perhaps the author of this essay has not read it. Yes, in fact, several times, and the author has even spent three weeks discussing it in a university course he instructed. There is no single lesson to be learned from the block size war. It was a complicated story, filled with blunders, turnabout, well and poorly played hands. The idea that the team that won in 2017 is forever the victor is silly. Just like winning the Super Bowl in 2017 did not confer the New England Patriots with eternal infallibility, the victory of the small blockers in 2017 does not mean every future battle will have the same outcome. This is one of the most nonsensical tenets of Bitcoin dogma. Now, in a couple of different senses, he is accurate. There's 
not any single lesson to be learned about the block size war, and there was actually a ton of nuance in what happened there. And one of the things that I really loved about the book, for those who have listened and or read it, is the, the fact that had the big blockers really wanted to stop Segwit, they could have actually done the, played the same game of chicken against the user-activated soft fork and won against the soft fork. And I totally believe that to be true because of the game theory of how the protocol or how the network and the social layer work. Because what happens is that consensus or the shelling point tends toward not changing in the face of any sort of forced change, whether it be a soft fork or a hard fork. So what was going on was that a hard fork was trying to be pushed by the corporate class, by this group of miners and Coinbase and all of these big corporations that thought they were the representatives of all of the uh, all of the users because, you know, Coinbase had 10 million users, 20 million users, whatever the hell it was. We speak for them. And what happened is the plebs and everyone got together and they wanted to push a soft fork that got the SegWit. So SegWit was part of both of their plans. They were going to do SegWit, the corporate group, so to speak, was going to do SegWit plus a two megabyte hard fork, and the other group wanted to just do SegWit. And they called their bluff. They said, okay, you want to do SegWit plus your hard fork? Hard fork off. Make your own coin. We're going to do just SegWit because that is the one that has consensus. And it worked. The balance ended up, you know, basically calling their bluff. The futures markets for their fork basically plummeted. And this was before they made the decision to drop it. Why? Because nobody trusted them. Everybody was scared of the idea of a hard fork or breaking the Bitcoin network because of what a bunch of corporations wanted to get out of the network. And so with that, all of the weight, the weight of the default ended up, the, the, le- the path of least resistance was to just go along with the soft fork. And so we got SegWit. However, if they had understood the game theory, what they could have done is executed a user-activated hard fork by rejecting the soft fork, basically turning the soft fork into a hard fork without their consent because they were simply going to reject SegWit and Bitcoin wasn't going to change at all. And that's, that is an important lesson from the block size war, is that the less change always has the greater default consensus. The power of the Bitcoin game theory is that consensus on it changing is more difficult than consensus on it staying the same. Now, the idea that, you know, the team of 2017 were the small blockers and the Raspberry Pi people and, the, you know, user-activated soft forkers, you know, I, I put on my hat and I ran my node. I remember those days. It was kind of crazy. But the idea that it necessarily means that that team has to win in order for if or here's a better way to put it is that if that team doesn't win then that means BlackRock has total control or they can just do whatever they want or they can just unilaterally make changes to this entire network and ecosystem and everything I think there is a huge huge problem there that comes from a rather naive picture of what traditional finance is and what the problems with the political financial Wall Street apparatus like the entire ecosystem and industry what's the problem with the global banking system and the global political systems 
I think the idea that that is possible or that 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 is such an easy thing to accomplish has more to do with a misunderstanding of that system rather than a misunderstanding explicitly of Bitcoin. However, I do completely disagree with another one of the core premises here. This one he specifically details out so I can actually just quote it verbatim rather than having to presume it or, or uh, you know, build it implied out of his arguments. So here it is. It's quote, to put it simply, there are now corporations with billions of dollars of investment in not just the asset, but the ecosystem. Mining is a huge economic drain on the system, and all it accomplishes is censorship resistance. If censorship resistance isn't worth tens or hundreds of billions of dollars per year to the corporations, they will find a way to end it. This is where I pretty much completely disagree. I think, I think this is a fundamental misunderstanding of what pieces of what are most important. Mining does not accomplish censorship resistance. Funding by fees accomplishes censorship resistance. Mining is a consensus mechanism. It is how you distribute trust as to what the canonical history of the chain actually is. If its purpose was entirely censorship resistance, he might actually have something to his argument. But if I am right, and I really think I am, that the fundamental purpose of mining is actually decentralized consensus, then there's actually two things that follow from that that both essentially break down this entire argument. One, if it's not for consensus and they can just replace a centralized ledger and no, only people will care about what BlackRock how BlackRock orders transactions and they won't care how Bitcoin orders transactions, then there won't be a high fee environment, which he basically lays out require, it requires a high fee environment for them to basically undermine the whole system. The ultimate value of Bitcoin is the fact that you have decentralized consensus on who owns what. And that gets me to the second issue uh, derived from this that I think kind of ruins the whole, the whole frame of thinking is that somehow traditional finance, the central bank, Russia, the US, China, Africa, South America, BlackRock, Fidelity, MicroStrategy, that somehow, just because something isn't Bitcoin, that it's in the fiat and traditional finance system, or the dollar system versus BRICS, that somehow they've already fixed the consensus problem. That they are totally in consensus and there will be no debate or argument among even them about what course of action to take, when to take it, what to include in blocks, etc., etc. That the whole world will basically put BlackRock's dick in their mouth and do whatever they say. And honestly, if that was the case, you'd never need a consensus technology like Bitcoin in the first place. So let me lay out where I think this framing will not have any relation to the reality on the ground that we are talking about, assuming the state and value of the network as laid out in this very article. So the suggestion at the very beginning was that $30 trillion, and I think that's a safe assumption. I mean, wouldn't that be the worst case scenario technically? Let's take that. That $30 trillion from BlackRock and, you know, the legacy like dollar stock market and retirement, that $30 trillion floods into Bitcoin in the paper the paper ETF in Bitcoin markets. And what follows supposedly is that now essentially BlackRock controls the entire Bitcoin market. 
where I think this has a major failure and what that reality might look like if that even did occur is that it is the assumption that Bitcoin literally becomes the most important asset on the planet at like $30 trillion and literally no liquidity, no value, no trillions from anywhere else in the world also decide to be a part of this or make an investment in it or make an ETF. This would also require the assumption that the BRICS nations, China, Russia, India, these nations creating a new monetary block that are actually the larger economic power than NATO and the Western countries, that they have no piece of this. They are not interested. They don't have an ETF. It's all in BlackRock. That Bitcoin became the most valuable ETF asset on planet Earth, and yet at the same time, somehow, nobody else around the world, no other financial systems, no other monetary regimes, no other totalitarian governments or freedom governments, nothing. No, nobody else cares. All the liquidity is in the paper, explicitly inland United States financial markets. I think that's a silly assumption. And that's not about decentralized miners taking over or Raspberry Pis defending the network and, you know, a bunch of cypherpunk nerds on their home computers protecting the network from change. That's more of a China isn't going to do whatever the U.S. wants to do and they're not going to be able to agree and neither one of them will be able to get the upper hand to actually change Bitcoin. Again, it's not that consensus necessarily coalesces around just this little cypherpunk group running their Raspberry Pis, it's that consensus coalesces around not changing Bitcoin easier than it does around any specific change to Bitcoin. China, Russia, India, Fidelity, MicroStrategy, none of these institutions or people are going to invest in BlackRock Bitcoin. BlackRock coin is just going to be the shitcoin bag held by all the poor saps who are using their ETF in their retirement accounts. And also remember, China and Russia are pretty much guaranteed to be on the OFAC censorship list. So if Bitcoin is the most valuable asset, the most valuable ETF commodity on the planet now, I promise you, Russia and China are going to mine their own transactions. Now, the next big piece is that this would also assume, as part of the premise, that all of the development, all the programmers, all the Lightning developers, the Bitcoin Core developers, all of the nodes, all of the infrastructure, that everything built in this ecosystem is no longer important or has any meaningful impact on the direction of the protocol or the the financial value and network of the social and financial value at all. That only the credit instruments will completely and unilaterally control the state of the protocol and the actual physical network. That it will trump any and all development of anything. That all of those tools are meaningless. Nobody cares about Lightning. Nobody cares about nodes. Nobody cares about on-chain transactions, which means... The premise of high-fee transactions are going to give them uh, the ability to undermine the market and take over. Nobody would care because there's no high-fee high transactions. It explicitly requires that there is high demand, that people do care about the settlement on the actual chain and the canonical history of who owns what on the Bitcoin system. If they do care, then all of that infrastructure, all of that development, all of those coders and cryptographers do matter because they're the only ones who can build this. You think BlackRock is going to have like 
just pull a thousand brilliant cryptographers out of their ass to do whatever the hell they want them to do? You can't just buy passion and expertise. The cypherpunks have basically been the top cryptographers of the planet since the 1990s. Remember, the cryptography in the cypherpunk mailing list is basically the who's who of all of the encryption and security standards of the history of the internet. It was WikiLeaks, it was SSL, it was BitTorrent, it was PGP. So much of the tools that are all being used right now just to listen to this RSS feed were made by cypherpunks. That is not something that can just be replaced. If the development ecosystem and the thousands of developers and lightning builders and infrastructure and nodes and high fees on the network are valued and mean anything at all, then BlackRock trying to fire that entire ecosystem means owning BlackRock Bitcoin ETF is worthless. And if they have enough liquidity and power over the credit markets that they can just ignore all of that and that their value, they're worth something, whether or not all the Bitcoin development just up and vanish tomorrow, then why do they hard fork? What do they need to do to take over the network? The idea of taking over the network is the assumption that the network is actually the thing that holds value. The presumption of this argument is that the credit instrument is already the only thing that matters. That's why they can take it over. Well, then they don't have to take anything over. Mining isn't a cost for them. It's just something that miners do. They already have total control of all the value ledger. They can just edit stuff internally on the ETF. It's assuming that their full control will now get them to fully control the infrastructure and kick out the miners and do this long multi-year plan. But why would, you, why would you do that? Now you're just threatening the control that you already have over a valuable asset. And somehow they're going to do this. And just because there's a 1%, 1 to 5% allocation for a bunch of people in the US to their ETF, that somehow this is not going to result in an absolute collapse of the market price and an exit? I mean, just look at, you think what's going on with GT, GBTC and between GBTC and IBIT and HODL and BRRRR and you know, all these different ETFs, watching these things fluctuate in between each other, you think that doesn't, like, there's just, there's going to be no conflict? That somebody's just going to, that BlackRock is just going to take over the whole thing and that this isn't going to be an absolute shitstorm of screaming and fighting and political attacks and media campaigns and cypherpunks memeing the absolute shit out of these people, embarrassing them in public, hacking them and releasing everything that they have onto the entire network, poning the shit out of everything connected to the internet that they are touching. And that's literally just what happens in the social sphere. I mean, just think of, go back, go back. For, for anybody who was there or for anybody who's read blo The Block Size War, how vicious did that get? How many DDoS attacks were there? How many thousands of fake nodes were spun up? How many hacks were there? Understand that if Bitcoin becomes a $30 trillion asset purely from the inflows of retirement accounts, with BlackRock and the, the permissioned U.S. financial system, if anything like this would, was attempted, it would make the block size war look like a peaceful kumbaya session sitting around the fire with a bunch of best friends. We're not talking flame wars on Reddit and Twitter. We would be talking about murder, assassination, and state-level network attacks. Again, because consensus is not easy. 
To the contrary, it is essentially the problem of the political and financial world right now, is that consensus is breaking down, and Bitcoin would be growing as that dissonance in the fiat and political apparatus is also growing. So they are losing consensus at the same rate, roughly, because we're talking about a monetary shift. Anything that goes into Bitcoin is something that necessarily leaves from fiat. So the assumption that when this is even tried is that there will not be somehow their consensus problems that are really, really bad right now and growing will somehow magically work themselves out that when 30 trillion, probably 60 or 70, because the whole, of, the whole rest of the world will undoubtedly want a piece of this pie, when that flows into Bitcoin, that somehow we won't be thinking differently about fiat as it loses $70 trillion worth of investment. Remember, this is a, a winner-take-all game where all Bitcoin investment must be a dollar divestment. And that somehow none of these entities are in it to make money. Because the idea that somehow any of this goes off without a massive collapse in the price or an insane amount of volatility, which by the way, decentralized miners and Bitcoiners are really used to. BlackRock's not really used to that. They are going to be the ones that take their $10 trillion in Bitcoin held assets and leverage it up to 30 and 40. They are undoubtedly going to take their really stupid fiat practices and they are going to apply it to Bitcoin and it's not going to work. And one of the key reasons why it will not why it does work on gold, but it does not work on Bitcoin, is one of the issues that I brought up in Guys Take 79. The fundamental flaw in gold settlement was that the cost scales up with the scale of the value settlement. The difficulty, the time, the orchestration, the capital and real estate required, the battleship that you have to send around the planet to go pick up your gold. When we're talking about moving, half a trillion dollars worth of gold. We're talking about a year-long operation and state-level actors being the only ones with even slightly the capacity to really pull this off. The value settlement of Bitcoin gets easier and cheaper the higher it goes because it's a digital asset and you pay not for a value fee, you pay for a block space fee. This is an area where the settlement dynamics of Bitcoin are fundamentally opposed to the problems of gold settlement. So when MicroStrategy, let's say MicroStrategy is holding the BlackRock ETF, and they just happen to have something to say about BlackRock's decisions on how to completely control, take over, and reframe the entire purpose and everything that Bitcoin does, and to ignore the global ecosystem built around this and to just basically say that the U.S. closed financial system is the only thing that even matters because, you know, retirement accounts and all the retirement people don't know what's happening anyway. So there will be no, there will be no problem with any of this. This will just go very, very smoothly. Think about another big piece of this puzzle, that if this supposed future plays out, MicroStrategy and Michael, Michael Saylor together is a trillion dollar entity. And probably some cypherpunk out there probably has about a trillion dollars sitting around. And basically all of the OGs are decamillionaires or billionaires. So in our proposed future, cypherpunks also have more capital to expend than they have ever had as a community in the history of the cypherpunk and cryptography concepts. And it's also important to note how market prices are established. 
market prices are established at the outer edge. It's a very shallow layer on top that actually determines the, the market swings from day to day. They are going to care about the news. They are going to care about all of the massive you know, claims that we're going to do this or some fork of this or some censorship of the network and OFA, OFAC compliance, etc. For the same reason they care about what the CEO of Twitter posts when he's drunk late at night and he posts makes some joke about the SEC and then the stock plummets or goes up by 10 or 15%. The price is set on the margin. I would argue that practically immediately, if BlackRock started to try and do this, their ETF would just deviate from the global market because there is no problem with Bitcoin value settlement. There is not a scaling issue there. There is a scaling issue for broad ownership of small amounts. There's no scaling issue at all on the high end of value settlement that can be done in consensus against some other corporation or government. This is explicitly why selling block space outside in the, in the sense of a side chain or a CTV timeout tree or whatever it is will actually be a valuable service because of the incredible value of the consensus of the Bitcoin network. Because if anybody tries to come in and break it, everybody's going to freak out. And if everybody is freaking out and screaming at each other and governments are fighting and corporations are fighting and people are trying to divest of this ETF and invest in this ETF and they're trying to exit their capital out of the U.S. markets and in 10 minutes it's in the Hong Kong markets or it's in the Russian markets. Or it's just sitting pretty in cold storage on the Bitcoin blockchain because big middle finger to the U.S. financial markets and BlackRock and whatever the hell it is that they want to do. I'm going to take my $500 billion and go elsewhere. And now their, their two to one leverage that they thought that they could get away with is now suddenly 12 to one leverage. They're going to get wiped out. And all of that lack of consensus, all of that infighting means nobody can change Bitcoin. Everyone fighting and disagreeing largely means by the game theory of the consensus system that Bitcoin is pretty safe. So one of the premises of this entire thought process is that there will not be argument, there will not be contest, there will not be fighting over the most important commodity on the planet. And then also that for part of the plan to get started, there's extremely high demand for block space because everybody does care about the consensus of Bitcoin and the ownership on the Bitcoin chain. But then that is all undermined because everybody actually just owns BlackRock and nobody actually cares about it. And then they will undercut it and all of the fees will plummet because now nobody will value it. And everybody just wants BlackRock spreadsheet instead. And also kind of assuming that all of this takes place and nobody really learns anything about Bitcoin. That... Everybody's just equally, like, like the, the ignorance about Bitcoin and everything else about the market is just kind of the same as it is today. Now, understand, because I disagree with this logical framing, and I think there are some fundamental differences where this actually does pretty well apply to gold in certain respects. And there are some things that I would talk about in kind of an argument. If I, if I was making this argument for gold, I would have talked about more critical characteristics specific to gold rather than just, oh, there's more liquidity in the, you know, the gold ETF open, owned by whoever. But nonetheless, this would be a, and I really like the paper mache analogy, this would probably be a good thought experiment for why and how gold might fail. But again, just like I talked about in the previous guy's take, I think there are a couple of critical 
very, very critical differences for how Bitcoin works and the, the variations of scaling and settlement issues that Bitcoin has versus gold, that Bitcoin, whatever happens to Bitcoin, it won't be the same thing that happens to gold because those are fundamental differences that completely change the, di the scaling dynamics of the settlement problem. It's easier to settle a trillion dollars than it is to settle $10 when we're talking about the consensus ownership of the Bitcoin layer one and we're talking about a 30 trillion, 50 trillion dollar asset. And of course, it also kind of requires that the mining landscape looks exactly like it does today, which go on any three year timeline, the, the amount of change in the mining landscape is profound. Three years ago, China was the overwhelming majority of the market. And in six months, they were like 25%. So again, does the traditional fiat political financial world have consensus or not? And is mining purely used for censorship resistance or is it the consensus mechanism of the canonical history of Bitcoin that is done so that you can trust the proof of work instead of trusting BlackRock's version of the node, etc., etc.? And do people want that? Are they paying high fees for it? Or do they not want it? So they're not paying any fees for it. Now, again, going back to my caveat here, I don't think this means that BlackRock can't cause problems. I do not think that that means that this is all going to be daisies and, you know, skipping through the meadow, that this is going to be easy and that there aren't fights ahead of us. To the contrary, I think the worst, most vicious and most painful, awful fights are absolutely ahead of us. BlackRock will cause lots of problems. There will be lots of leverage. There will be lots of paper Bitcoin, but it will not play out like gold. Those differences are extremely fundamental and they completely change the dynamic from the ground up. And I think most of these actors, especially if Bitcoin becomes the most important commodity on the planet, will just want to have more of that commodity. They will want to own it. They will want that settlement. They will not trust BlackRock. It's important to remember, remember that the different variations and degrees of centralization that have happened in Bitcoin's past, like ghash.io and their, their pool getting over 51% by themselves, China dominating the mining system or the mining ecosystem, which is anything but the same thing, but it's at least still within one jurisdiction that could potentially exert a lot of control over it. However, they completely banned it and like 20%, 25% still stayed in China. So they clearly can't, don't, they don't have a magic wand to completely control the entire thing because they banned it and they didn't get rid of the entire thing. But then to do that to the development community, the ecosystem, the infrastructure, the nodes, the networks, all of the applications that are built on top of this thing that have liquidity for how many damn people all around the world, the various financial systems, the financial systems in African countries and in South American countries that explode and become 10 times, 100 times the size that they are now because now they have a permissionless consensus mechanism to actually do commerce with each other and they don't have to give a shit about being controlled by the CIFA franc or the US dollar financial system that is closed to them and then requires them to have huge fees and to have loans from the IMF that they can escape this system and actually start to grow that now somehow 
in a $30 trillion, $60 trillion Bitcoin world, they didn't have any meaningful growth. They did not become any sort of meaningful part of the global economic system and have any power, that they didn't mind Bitcoin in doing this, that they just left this huge freaking opportunity on the table, that El Salvador isn't 20 times the country when that day comes than they are today because they've already front-run BlackRock? That the BRICS nations have nothing to say about it? That they somehow avoided Bitcoin after, like, through all of this period? That the OGs have no political or social weight to throw around and no capital to actually defend this thing? And importantly, that none of them are in this to make money. None of, this, none of them are in this to make more Bitcoin as Bitcoin causes increasing inflation and divestment from the dollar and escape from a, what, $60 trillion, $80 trillion debt burden for the U.S. US government at that point. And that all they really have to do is mine empty blocks or censor some blocks for some span of time, and everybody's just going to kind of throw up their hands and be like, well, I guess we had a good run, but BlackRock says, and that's that. And all of the fiat paper markets and all of the different corporations and individuals and governments and institutions and regulatory bodies that are fighting amongst themselves right now trying to figure out who who's the one that gets to say what the rules about bitcoin are that suddenly those consensus problems will vanish and they will all fall in line around giving the entire ledger over to blackrock to do what they want there will there will not be a consensus issue and of course that fundamentally mining has nothing to do with consensus but that it is purely for censorship resistance. While this is a fun thought experiment, and there is some truth to the problems that can be caused, and the issues with paper markets having greater liquidity, and lots of value moving off of the base layer, I do not think this is representative of anything that will actually look like reality in the coming decade. I think it will be vastly messier, and more dissonant in the amount of problems and volatility and challenges and attacks that will come. But I largely think that the fiat system is losing consensus rapidly about what to do, what to hold, who is in power, and what fiat is the backstop for global commerce. And Bitcoin will rise in that scenario specifically because of that failing consensus. And as that continues to get worse and inflation continues to get worse and the debts of all of the modern Western and Eastern governments of the world get worse and worse and more and more unsustainable, the idea of holding fiat, of holding an IOU or a credit instrument for a powerful corporation, government, third world government that will be rising during this period, or any institution that can afford $500 fees on layer one, I am certain that holding politically vulnerable debt will not be a very popular proposition. And I do not think it will be nearly as simple as this article lays out. So anyway, those are my thoughts on that. So in summary, uh, sure, they'll be able to cause lots of problems. Sure, it will be a pain in the ass. But no, I do not think there is any sense of unilateral control or honestly any concern that Bitcoin grows to something like $30 trillion and that BlackRock is holding all of the relevant liquidity to basically just somehow run the market. 
the settlement of Bitcoin at scale in the context of value is too easy. Like this bluff will get called a lot. And I do not think even slightly that BlackRock is not susceptible to the FTX problem. And if they treat it that way, they will be a victim of it. I think it is more likely that Bitcoin actually makes a lot of these institutions go bankrupt and exposes more insolvencies than not. And if they keep leveraging themselves, it will be some other corporation, some billion dollar player, some wealthy micro strategy that calls their bluff, exits, and turns what is, you know, what they think of as a safe 3x or 4x leverage into a 10x, a 20x leverage, and then the entire institution collapses and people lose their absolute minds. That, I think, is something we are more likely to see in the near to distant future as we go through this transaction to Bitcoin being a 30 trillion or 60 trillion dollar asset. And we will, we 100% will have a serious fight about censorship resistance. And I do not expect it to be an easy one. But I mean it will not be easy either for them or for us. So with that, we will close this episode. A huge thank you to Akeem for writing this piece. Um, as always, I, I really love the thought experiments on this sort of stuff. And I don't want to undermine the importance of the potential risks in having a huge amount of paper market. I just don't, don't think that this is really the, the realistic path to a major problem. I, I think we run into a lot of problems, a lot of various and more incremental problems along this path that are going to be a real huge pain in the butt, and the fight will never end, basically. We will always have to fight for Bitcoin's uh, value and independence. But ultimately, the game theory of this consensus network lies in the fact that anyone who wants to enact a malicious change has a much larger uphill battle than anyone who wants it to stay the same. Thank you to CoinKite and Swan Bitcoin for sponsoring this show. A shout out to all of the Audionauts. I love you guys. And I will catch you on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. Until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. First principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. Richard P. Feynman <laughs>